0: More than anything is just a horse that won't quit. honor. There's no way he finishes. I owe him the chance. Get up. I'm Tim Finley, and this is To Live with Honor. Chapter 9 Miracles All the tales of miracles with which the Old and New Testament are filled are fit only for impostors to preach and fools to believe. Thomas Paine. I don't believe in miracles. miracles. At least, not as we think of them. The term miracle has a couple definitions that apply here. One, a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws, and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. And two, a highly improbable or extraordinary event, development, or accomplishment that brings very welcome consequences. On its face, the definitions seem to suit particularly now, looking back. But there's nothing in there about Jedi levitation powers, unconsuming flames, or resurrection. Yet, somehow we have that expectation of them. And also somehow, I thought honor was one. I was wrong. I guess most of us are. But I know what miracles are now. I've seen one. Don't pray for a miracle. Pray for courage. When the miracle comes, you'll need it. I regaled anyone who'd listen, and many who didn't care to, with Honor's uncanny story. Where I had been mired in some swamp of sadness wilderness. I now awoke to a world energized, optimistic, and confident. My heart beat wild, but soft with love. As I watched Missy through the window outside, sitting atop a happy pony, I understood how my perspective had changed. Perfume smelled for the first time is just a pleasant scent. But once attached to a memory, that scent becomes the memory. The subconscious recognizes it before the conscious mind remembers it. It's the only way I can think to explain how my brain began to understand Missy, Honor, myself, and our place in all this cosmic chaos. The further we moved along this mysterious pre-scripted stage play, the more I felt aware of, and understood as a whole, the players on the stage. Missy, Honor, myself. I began to appreciate the shadows and the light both, how they intertwined to make something beautiful and Without those shadows, there would be no depth. I knew why. Since honor came into our lives, the fog hanging over us had burned away. That fog had made everything a soupy gray, a scene of indistinguishable shadow and light, without any depth or clarity. But his providential addition, I was certain, meant to stitch wounds ripped asunder. It made perfect sense. The synchronicity and and serendipity was leagues beyond coincidental. This was my redemption. Mine. Me. I had the audacity to save him. To be at that one critical juncture in space and time to be Honor's hero. For God's sake, his name was Honor. I believed every bit of this. I believed he was my miracle. My miracle. Alas, I placed the miracle cart before the horse. If the divine were a simpleton who worked in such trite ways, life would feel pretty contrived. Life would carry on as predictable and boring as the shitty Hallmark Channel movies portray it. But life plods and then races. It jukes and scrambles in random directions, often without any pattern or purpose. As homo sapiens, we turned to the stars and pleaded, begged, cried, and cursed for an explanation of our purpose. 200,000 years later, and we're still at it. Perhaps the universe is designed in a way that no human could or should ever understand the whole picture. Maybe it should be complex and cryptic. Maybe existence is designed to have an objective mystery about it, so as to provide an individual answer for each individual heart asking its question. If the universe were an intentional design derived of chaos, deterministic or otherwise, then maybe, just maybe, all those billions of jumbled answers interacting and reacting, colliding, combining, And sometimes combusting, maybe they make perfect sense. So then how the hell does providence show face? In perfect, beautiful, organized simplicity. Let's assume God does exist. He isn't overt. We can't point at him. He doesn't play chess in the park moving pieces telekinetically. The best we've come to proving, philosophically speaking, the existence of the transcendent, roots in Aristotle's unmoved mover, or prime mover, which was later picked up and advanced by Thomas Aquinas. The idea states in a nutshell that all the universe is motion and momentum, and that all that interaction must logically have been spurred by something that wasn't moving. Something had to set the universe to motion. It's the law of causality applied to all of reality. If you buy this, if you buy the idea of the prime mover, then when the stars align, it gets your attention. If you don't buy this, when the stars align, it gets your attention. There's this warped concept of miracles floating around. Again, the hallmark variety. That miracles somehow spit on physics and end with flashy, immediate gratification. We see divine intervention as water to wine, parting seas, or anything measured by the word biblical, like plagues, wars, zombies, or whatever. Look around. We exist within the reality in which we exist. Rogue black holes barrel through the galaxy unknown and unseen and devour planets and stars. Genocide is a thing. Diseases like the black plague kill off significant percentages of the world's population. World War II had an Eastern Front. Want to see hell on Earth? The Battle of the Bulge was a kindergarten play in comparison. What's more, there wasn't even a good guy in that fight. And Poland? The poor Poles. Why? What's the purpose? We will never pull a catch-all explanation down from the stars, and we're fools to try. The only answer, then, that hope allows is one each finds for himself. We keep looking for one single miracle the size of the universe to answer our universal question, but miracles fill less space than the Higgs boson particle, the elusive God particle. Miracles don't radiate like a nova. They reveal truth by chipping away at the dark. A miracle isn't an event. It's a process, a slowly revolving conjunction that hints at its outcome, that's hope, and reveals itself in the instant of alignment. We notice miracles when whoever or whatever made all this nonsense wants us to notice it. Miracles aren't designed to save the world, they are tailored to reach one heart, one existence in the chaos at a time. Miracles don't change reality, they only bring attention to what already is by aligning a momentary order out of the anarchy. The tiny moment of engineered purpose, twinkling amidst the chaos, revealed in a way only one heart can see, that is the whisper of the transcendent. A real miracle. Quiet, simple, perfect. Miracles proceed in a weird extra dimensional way, which I suppose they would have to logically. While in the works, the universe seems to orbit around it in a choreographed ballet. We can't see it beyond the swirling orbs, only sense the dance around us, or feel the rumble. Miracles echo the sound of the fallen tree that has no one to hear it. They hide their beauty in anticipation of the revelation, the prestige, the punchline, the payoff. But the miracle is not the payoff. That moment is only the revelation of the process leading to it. A transcendent wink. After all, if we saw it coming, would we call it a miracle? What good is a miracle we can watch being built? How could we possibly appreciate it? What is the value of a miracle if it is simply given and not, quote, earned, if that's the word? What is a lesson without the experience? How valuable is the answer without the test of a question? Moreover, insofar as honor's story, what had I earned? What made me think it was my miracle? Or that I could even see it for what it was? Sometimes, stitches must be re as some wounds must break open again in order to heal. Some miracles aren't meant to heal. Some are meant to bleed and keep bleeding. Miracles are never pleasant, not at first. First, a miracle must be endured, must be survived. One must live to experience the miracle. I believed providence brought honor into our lives. And I viewed him as the embodiment of that. To some degree, I think Missy understood it that way too. Anyone familiar with the Christian faith can tell you, God is a fisherman. <laughs> Joke's on us, I suppose. Yes, I told everyone the story. I shouted down every conversation in every crowded room with Honor's amazing story, whether they wanted to hear it or not. The boasting flew off my tongue, and my eyes sparkled with every word. I bragged about my auction house heroics and their amazing reward. The lure of what was occurring around us and between me and Missy was beautiful, flashy, and tempting. But the fisherman's lure has a hook. Its piercing steel lurked unseen beneath the enticing colors. I guess hubris and confidence swim in the same stream. They say God is a fisherman. If he is, when he sets the hook, it bleeds. Horses at our house came and went, but Honor remained the one permanent fixture. Maverick, the psycho circuler don't get me wrong, nice guy, just a couple loose screws, returned to his previous owner when Missy decided Honor would be her project. Hottie, whom Honor had taken a liking to, detested Honor. We paired the two in the front paddock hoping to calm Honor's urge to test his speed and shitty brakes against every fence. It worked. Except... Hottie, the evil red-headed Minnie, otherwise a bombproof babysitter, lunged with pinned ears when Honor approached her. She tolerated him for only one thing, food. Missy thought it was comical. I hated it. Hottie was a glutton who gained weight from breathing Oklahoma oxygen. She beguiled her way to fatness. She allowed Honor to grab a mouthful of grain out of the bucket atop the fence and because Honor was such a sloppy eater, half would fall to the ground. Once enough fell, she chased him off. Missy Belly laughed as the rotund Minnie chased off the gargantuan colt. Hottie ate to her heart's content and then walked away, allowing Honor to grab another mouthful. Rinse, repeat. Over time, Hottie trained him to get a mouthful, spill some, and walk away. I stood between Honor and Hottie swinging a lead rope around like an airplane propeller, yelling obscenities at the snotty mare. Honor didn't care or didn't notice the difference. He just ate. Obliviousness is a big chunk of his charm. Hottie, meanwhile, ranted and bucked in a pissy mess of chestnut hot-headedness. She sprinted side to side like a midget halfback trying to beat the defender to the edge. She sweat up a storm, I sweat up a storm, Missy sweat up a storm laughing. And Honor just stood there chewing, with grain pouring out of his cheeks.
1: Someone wants to lease Hottie in Florida,
0: she said, leaning on the fence, watching me joust the demon pony. Good, get that fat ass away from my horse. I'm tired of battling her while my skinny horse gets skinnier.
1: Oh, I don't know. I sort of enjoy the show. It's cute watching you fight for Honor.
0: Her smile warmed her face. Glad you think so. I didn't smile, but something. Something resonated in my memory when she said it. The echo went away.
1: Anyway, it's a really good home, and I figured we could take her and Maverick to Florida and trade out for the other two horses.
0: She spoke of Sugar, a gorgeous chestnut warm blood, and Kimmy, a petite Arabian that belonged to one of her former students. Missy, as particular as she is about driving the trailer, opted to drive most of the way, except the last couple hours where she couldn't stay awake any longer. She acquiesced to letting me drive just before entering Florida. Par for the course, completely horse ignorant, I cruised right past the ag station at 65 miles per hour while Missy snored. Let's face it, what the, what the hell is an ag station to an airman? The officer spoke with a kind smile as he sighted me, ticketed me, and ordered me out of the driver's seat. It's a thin blue line out there in the agricultural enforcement world. But seriously, what the hell is an ag station? And what? Oh, forget it. We added the two mares in the fall of 2011. On an adventurous, harrowing 19-hour trek back from Florida, a flat tire at the halfway point in the freezing November rain tested our patience, as well as the patience of inexperienced horses in the trailer. Murphy's Law seems to enjoy stalking the Finley House. I hate Murphy and the flaming bags of crap he left on our porch. Murphy and Providence often co-conspire. We invested ample time adjusting the mares to Oklahoma living, as well as honor to living with new full-sized additions to the herd. Kimmy, the 13-year-old Arabian, maintained her distance in the paddock. Sugar, the Hanoverian, while investigating Honor and striking up squealing conversation, detested him. Guess it's a redhead thing. Honor yearned to integrate with the new herd against a headwind of mare. He pleaded for companionship and attention. They hated him. We felt sorry for Honor. He had become such a loving, affectionate horse, whose only fault was his gigantic heart and his gigantic chest. Day after day, Honor paced up and down the cross fence, crying out for the company as the girls huddled at a comfortable distance, grazing, gawking, and gossiping. We traded one bitch for two. You see that, right?
1: It takes time. They're an established herd in a new place, and he's an annoying, loud little boy who won't shut up.
0: Well, Sugar's no better. Stop defending them. Is this a feminist thing?
1: We outnumber you. Choose your words carefully.
0: Oh, Oh, I know. And I'm the only one left with any balls here. I see your plot. Don't think I don't know what's going on here. This is tyranny of the majority, and testes are one referendum vote away from being outlawed. I'm a political scientist. I'm on to you, Watson.
1: I have no idea what any of that means.
0: She paused, then squinted devilish eyes. Or do I? Enter Ned. Ned embodied every romanticized ideal of the western workhorse. I heard Ned survived the Battle of Wounded Knee just before driving the Chisholm Trail for 20 years. It's rumored that he actually did kill a man in Reno just to watch him die. I believe that man was Wild Bill Hickok when Ned caught him pulling that eight of clubs out of his sleeve. Personified, Ned was Sam Elliott in every collective role that Sam ever played, but played it better. Ned was an authentic cowboy, stoic and mysterious, whose hooves were calloused by the toil of rugged work, like the men who once rode astride him. Ned also expressed a unique quality the other two horses didn't. Patience. Patience like mountains. His 18-year-old frame showed signs of wear on close inspection, but the wear was endearing. In a previous life, Ned healed his way to a national roping championship in Las Vegas and bore the trademark white spots on the crest of his withers. The spots told stories the way a warrior's tattoos tell stories. The kind of stories curiosity drives one insane to know but can't muster the courage to ask. They inspired awe that partnered with Ned's stony-eyed iciness became something regal. Nick's tiny scars, muscular hail divots, And numerous other superficial imperfections speckled his body with a novel's worth of character. His meaty Greek columns hefted an athlete's body of long, curving lines and powerful, hulking mass. He stood 16 hands with cowboy boots on, but played 18 to the eyes, with the last extra inch or so an optical illusion of reverence. Ned was not simply a physical specimen, he defined American artistry. Although a gelding, He trumpeted more masculinity than most champion breeding stallions. His quarter-horse frame, painted with contrasting dappled walnut browns and glowing pristine whites, brought concepts like rugged individualism, manifest destiny, and murricana to life. Ned commanded respect, but he never asked for it. Nothing shook him, nothing hurt him. He lied about the soreness in his old dogs, and the aches in his cantankerous knees. Ned was just... Ned. And content doing... whatever. Missy bought Ned for me. But Ned... wouldn't be for me. She presented him as a peace offering amid the recent influx of estrogen at our house. Given my western background, she figured him to be a perfect fit. By then, though, the riding bug hadn't bit me yet. Instead... We just let Ned wander the paddocks as he pleased. This gave him a chance to rest his veteran legs and enjoy the serenity of just being an old cowboy retired from the cattle drive. Despite his inclination to deny it or mask it, Missy knew his old bones nagged him. And so we gave him space and time for something else he had taken a liking to. Honor. Honor, like everything else, including the girls, adored Ned. Ned was... Paul Newman cool with a dash of Clint Eastwood cold. But Ned gave something to honor he didn't give the girls. Attention. The spectacle warmed Missy and I so much, we both forgot why we bought the old man. Instead, we let him mentor the rambunctious cult at his leisure. We all have a job in life. Ned enjoyed his second life job, befriending the dorky kid in school that none of the other kids liked. For hours, Ned would battle with Honor over the top of the crossrail, both nipping, rearing, snorting, bouncing, charging, grooming, bucking, and grunting about sports and politics. Honor revered Ned. Ned enjoyed Honor. Honor peeled years off of Ned's sunken back and charged his aged muscles with youth. I watched a great man teach an impressionable boy about being a great man without words. Two, sometimes three cigarettes burned down to the filter before I could pull myself away from the back porch. I was watching camaraderie, a genuine dynamic of friendship, of giving back and leaving it better than you found it. Ned spoke to Honor in Hemingway dialogue about the most complex virtues. Honor sponged every word as gospel. Despite the cross the two were inseparable. A two-horse herd, mentor and student. General and PFC, hero and admirer, the girls watched on, intrigued as me, and changed their minds about honor. The two twos formed four without a shot ever being fired. It always seemed like Ned knew something no one else did. Looking back, maybe he did.
1: Choices i made
0: After this detente, Sugar eased to appreciate Honor's company as the two, close in age, she three and he preparing to be two, enjoyed youth's infiniteness together. The two kids glossed over their differences and began a mutual friendship, read, agreement, where Honor did as he was told, and she enjoyed his attention. I won't say Honor adored her, as Honor loved everything without qualification, and to say he was smitten would be a misrepresentation. What bears mentioning is despite her sassy veneer, Sugar was keen to Honor. Her fiery red hair just refused to confess it. We pull the ponytails of the ones we love. Some on the receiving end have the kind of heart, or the heart of kind, to appreciate it. We don't see a miracle as it manifests. When stars align to point at us, the nearest star is the only one we see. And it isn't until the harmonic gravitational wave of the entire mass of that conjunction crushes us, That we understand the message. Stars folded in line. The stage was set. Players readied their soliloquies behind the curtain. A fisherman felt a nibble on his line and smiled. This and the next episode are a bit of stage setting. As I'm sure some of you have caught on by now, There's something looming over the horizon, and loom large it does. But setting the stage precisely is important here, as the events following only hit with the purpose they do BECAUSE of the stage, otherwise i just tell you. So why all the spiritual stuff, right? The answer is simple, and, well, not so simple. The simple part is to cage your mind going into the events that follow, to cue you to look closer than you might have otherwise to be receptive and appreciate the nuance of how pointed and perfectly aimed the events are. Because when it does happen, many of you will hit pause and say, no fucking way. And as Billy Mays would say it, but wait, there's more. When I used to pitch the story, I basically summarized the first chapter, and people were like, what? His name was Honor? That's nuts. And then I have to immediately follow up with, yeah, but that's just where it started. It gets far, far weirder. The not-so-simple version is this. I need the listener to know what I knew, and more importantly, feel as I felt. Why? Because as I mentioned in this chapter, a miracle is precisely aimed. And for the audience to see it, they have to be me in that moment. You'll see it regardless, but if you can be me for that instant, it will knock you over. You'll feel the dilemma of waning faith, of conflicted belief, both believing strongly in the wrong thing and not believing at all in the right thing. Keep in mind, this is not prescriptive. I just want the listener to feel as ambiguous in faith as I did. And that's faith as a generality. That's why I use the term transcendent and speak of God with an almost folksy academic voice. If anything, I introduced some Faustian philosophy this chapter, where it's the demon Mephistopheles talking about how awful and chaotic the world is and how it would be so much better if the world just didn't exist. I don't care what you believe in. As I mentioned, the cosmos has an answer for your question. I only need you ready to believe. The important thing here is belief and the capacity for it. For what? I don't know. I don't care. That's up to you. I wasn't looking. I wasn't paying attention. I believed in only one thing, a horse with a specific name. And if you were the architect of miracles, how would you reach me? What would get my attention? This episode we're featuring Waypoint Ranch in Carrollton, Georgia, north of Atlanta. It's a standard equine-assisted therapy program that's geared specifically for veterans. Their vision is a nation where families secure peace, strengthen communities, and are no longer burdened by the multi-generational impacts of war. That statement, along with a quote from a veteran on their page, caught my attention. Quote, the horse allowed me to focus on something outside my own mind. I slept great last night. That quote is spot on. But there's more to it than that. It's what the horse shows you in that time spent outside your head that no human can. If you're in the northern Georgia area, you can give them a ring at 678-459-7825. Again, 678 678- 4597825 or find them online at waypointranch.org that's waypointranch.org I'm Tim Finley this is to live with honor live fierce this all ends